I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today on Work in Progress, I am honored to share the fascinating and incredibly timely conversation that I had the man who offers invaluable insight into our military, our democracy, leadership, and so much more, Mr. Guy Snodgrass. Commander Snodgrass is a retired Navy F-A-18 fighter pilot and a Top Gun graduate and instructor who served as the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps expert in air-to-air combat and tactics development. Commander Snodgrass also served as communications director and chief speechwriter for former Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis. Yes, the Jim Mattis who worked in the Trump White House. Commander Snodgrass is also the founder and CEO of Defense Analytics, a national security and foreign policy strategic advisory firm specializing in strategy development, government policy, and technology adoption. Widely recognized as an influential national security and foreign policy expert, Guy has appeared on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and is a regular contributor to publications like The Washington Post, Politico, Fox Business, CNN, and USA Today. In addition to having written and published two incredibly successful books, Holding the Line, Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis in 2019, 
and Top Gun's Top 10, Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit in 2020. Commander Snodgrass was kind enough to not only sit down and chat with me several months ago, but he joined me for a second time just a few weeks ago to share his incredibly valuable insight on the current state of our nation and the upcoming election and how his opinions have developed over the course of the year since we first spoke. It's really important to me to provide you guys with the most up-to-date and relevant conversations, which is why I asked Guy to sit down with me for a second time. Today, we've combined both of these conversations into one episode for you, where myself and Guy discuss everything from his career in the Navy as a fighter pilot and Top Gun instructor, to his experience as chief speechwriter for Jim Mattis, to his thoughts on our current administration, national security, the future of democracy itself, and of course, the upcoming election. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. I I feel like... The first thing I should tell you is that my granddad was a Navy man. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Good old Tom. Back in the day, I've still got his first set of tags. So pretty cool. And just, That is cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your service. And uh, again, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Well, thanks for paying your taxes and letting me do it for, you know, 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Happily. We obviously have so many current affairs to get into, but I— I would first like to go back and and kind of personalize you, you know, for mm-hmm. the audience. I think so many people that I get to interview are are known for what they're doing in the world right now. And I always like to know where you came from. I know that you grew up in Texas, right? That's right. What part of Texas did you grow up in? Sure. So I grew up in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area in North Texas. And, you know, great childhood, right? So had a great family, great church community, And um, I think that's, you know, when you think, when you look back, there's always these major milestones in your life that puts you on a path. And so that opportunity to, like I said, have a strong church family, to have, you know, I was a boy scout of all things, right? So I was one of these rule following kids, but that exposed me to a lot of what was outside of Dallas-Fort Worth. And that's where I first had my passion for flying, actually. how, How did that happen? How did flying come up? Sure. So no one in my family was a pilot, but... Uh, like I mentioned, when I was a, we had a Boy Scout troop and every year to help raise funds for camping or for trips we wanted to take to other states, we would go to the local air shows. And while we were there, we would actually, you know, get to watch the pilots who were performing. And every single time they had either the Blue Angels, which is the Navy flight demonstration team, or they would have the Thunderbirds come over. And so getting a chance to watch them, that's what really instilled the uh, love of flight and the desire to want to pursue that as I got older. That's so cool. What, I guess, besides flying, what sorts of things were you interested in as a kid? You know, uh, I'll be honest, I was a huge nerd. Uh, So I was really into uh, electronics. Uh, My dad was really cool. He was a attorney but he had a love of history and he also had like a little itch for computers and electronics. So um, I'm 43. So when you think back to that time frame, this is dial-up time. You know, you had a modem connected, AOL, instant messenger, those kinds of things. In fact, it was actually just before that. And Dallas is a big city and they would have every three weeks, they would have what's called a computer trade show. And it's basically where they sold parts for computers. And so you could go and pick out the motherboard or you could pick out the hard drive and so we would go, and with as little money as possible, we would collect all these different pieces and parts, and he'd say, go to town, you know? And so I would teach myself how to build the computer, 
And then you'd build it up and start learning how to program and stuff. So I, I was really into those kinds of things when I was a kid. So I loved computers. I loved reading. And then, of course, some of the sports with school as well. That's so cool. When did you decide that you wanted to go to the Naval Academy? Was that early in your childhood or were you a teenager by then? You know, I was a, I was a teenager. So I'd always thought that flying would be great, but I didn't necessarily think much about it. And I came from a family that was had a lot of background in law. My dad was an attorney. My uncle was a court reporter, right, in a courthouse. So he would record all the proceedings. My uh, great uncle had been a judge. And so I think I just naturally assumed that one day I'd probably go to law school and follow in my dad's footsteps. And that kind of itch to want to pursue flying stayed with me. And I was always kind of drawn to the military. And so my grades were so-so, but as I got towards the tail end of high school and I realized that was that was my new dream, I wanted to go to the one of the service academies, right? So you've got West Point in New York, you've got the Naval Academy in Maryland, and then you have the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, and you also have the Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut. I knew I wanted to go to one of them. And so I turned the grades around and actually started getting good grades, uh, earned my Eagle Scout uh, and the Boy Scouts of, of America. And so those types of things were the only reason, frankly, that I was accepted into the Naval Academy because otherwise there's no way they would have taken a second look at me. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, it's it's a high bar. I mean, it really is. We had 60 high school seniors from around the area who were competing to go to the Naval Academy in this case. And you could tell it's super competitive. I mean, some were valedictorians or salutatorians. Others were stars on the football team. And I was definitely not that individual. I mean, I played cross or I ran cross country and track, had played some soccer, but I was not a standout athlete. And I was also not necessarily a standout in academics. I think they just liked the fact that I demonstrated that I could get great grades when I worked hard. And the thing that really sold the team, they had a board who did all the interviews. So what sold them was my time as an Eagle Scout. The fact that I had taken a group of 15 you know, kids like myself to a high adventure camp called Philmont in New Mexico. And for two weeks, I was the one in charge and had led them through and could could discuss with them what it meant to be a leader and, and things that I was passionate about. And I think that's what swayed them into my camp. Mm, that's very cool. One of my fondest memories from my junior high and high school career, I started going to a summer camp in Northern California up in the mountains when I was nine and I eventually became a junior counselor and then a camp counselor. And that was like, that was such a shaping experience for me in, in what sort of community leadership and service looks like. So mm-hmm. I, I can only imagine kind of having taken it to the next level the way that you did. That's very cool. Well, I think it's the same, right? I think those are the types of, it's funny when you're on the outside looking in, you think you know what an organization wants, what they want to attract, And so I thought by the standard metric that I would not be someone the academy would necessarily want. I was good, but not great. But to your point, just like the the community service you just described, right? Um, Those are things that not everyone does. And so I think that that's what they're really looking for. They're looking for people who want to dedicate themselves to something bigger than themselves, who care about those around them and want to see, you know, it's one thing to, to achieve your own full potential, but if you can inspire that kind of dedication in others, I think that's what they were really looking for was someone who could grow up and become a leader in the Navy. So what was your time like at the academy? How how does it work there? What do you study? Can you kind of walk our listeners through it? You know, I mean, it's a, I'll lead by saying it was a phenomenal experience, but it's also the worst college experience you could imagine <laughs> because it's, you know, it's a military school. So 
Each of the military schools has its own flavor. The Naval Academy is fairly rigid. You are, you know, they've got a, a literal wall around the school. It's in a beautiful part. I mean, it's in Annapolis, Maryland, but it's a very rigid military structure. And I realized just how uh, rigid it was because I had an opportunity when I was a junior to go as an exchange student to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And I'm like, man, this place is like heaven because <laughs> uh, much more, I wouldn't say relaxed, but it, it was not nearly as stringent as the Naval Academy was. But it's everything from your, you practice drill. So they give you, a, they literally give you a rifle. And so several times a week, you're all forming into formations and you, and you march onto the football field and you practice, uh, you're doing schoolwork. And you also, I think the thing that I really enjoyed was that you had these field trips. You could go and train with the Marine Corps. You could train with other members of the services. And, and to me, that was neat because it felt like you were, you were doing something a little bit beyond um, what you might at just a normal university. And that, that appealed to me. Very cool. And what did you study? So I studied computer science, uh, hmm. which seemed like a natural fit from my interest in high school and carried that forward. So was there all told for the standard four years. And what makes the service academies unique is that when you graduate, you immediately get commissioned into one of the armed services. So in my case, most of us would come out and go to the Navy because the Naval Academy also serves the Marine Corps. You could become a Marine Corps officer. And then in my case, so I got commissioned as an ensign in the Navy and had been selected to go straight to grad school. So that's what gave me the opportunity to go straight from the Naval Academy. I had the summer off, which was fantastic. And then I went up to Boston to go to MIT for a couple of years before actually becoming a pilot. And what was your graduate degree in? So I got two. I got one in computer science, and then the other one was in, of of all things, nuclear engineering. So at, at what point, having done this double major at MIT, at what point did you decide that you definitely wanted to join the Navy? And and was there an expectation that you would join the Navy given your schooling? That's exactly right. So that's one of the commitments you make. When you sign on the dotted line and the one of the U.S. service academies brings you in, that's what you're signing up for. So you can go there for about two years. And if for whatever reason, either because you choose to leave or because the academy says, hey, you know, we think this may not be a good fit for you, you can walk away very easily. You can transfer to another college. You can go on with your life. Once you've hit that two-year milestone, then you're basically bought in. And so that's when you get your degree and you graduate that you'll be commissioned uh, as an officer into the Navy or into the Marine Corps. So when I had gone to MIT, I was already in the Navy. I was there as a naval officer. One of the, the great benefits of being there was you didn't have to wear a uniform. So you just got to be a normal college student after four years of being at the academy, that was a great thing. And then when I finished MIT after two years, it was a quick pause and then straight down to Pensacola, Florida. And that's where I actually started my flight training. Wow. Was that wild to begin that and and to realize that your dream as a kid was had arrived? It it absolutely was. Uh, you know, because you you from the moment you show up, there's planes going overhead. Everything around you is about aviation and about flying. And so like you just said, I mean, you sit there and kind of go, this is it. You've arrived. But it's also a weird feeling because even though you've arrived there and you're starting your schooling, there's a long road. It takes about a year and a half to two years until you finally earn your wings. And so in the Navy or in the Marine Corps, you get these gold wings that you wear on your uniform. And so we appropriately call those our, our Navy wings of gold. And it's a long road. And, and every step along the way, they're kind of weighing and measuring you. 
Are you going to be someone who flies helicopters? Are you going to be someone who flies propeller-driven airplane? Or in my case, are you going to be someone who flies a jet? And if you fly a jet, what kind of jet? And throughout that process, you're moving around. So I started in Pensacola. We did a lot of our academics there. Wound up going to Oklahoma to an Air Force base to start learning you know, the basics of actually flying a jet plane. And then went to Mississippi, and that's where I kind of finished up most of my training before going to California. And I was in Lemoore, California, uh, where they have a big Navy fighter base. And so that's where I learned to fly the, the plane I flew for the majority of my career. It's a plane called the FA-18, uh, the Hornet. It's a fighter jet, right? It is. What What is that like? I mean, you, you spent 20 years flying that plane in the Navy, correct? I did. What is the experience and and... When are you flying and why are you flying? You know, can can you kind of clue the listeners in on the procedure of it all? You know, I think that's even from my family's perspective, that's it's such a disconnect, right? It's it's like yourself, right? Being in a public space, being an actress, you know, it's something that it became normal for you, but for a vast majority of the people around you, they're in awe because of what you accomplished throughout your career and I would found that when I would go home, my family always just thought it was amazing that, you know, you're a fighter pilot. This is what you do for your day-to-day job. And for me, it was just my job. But it was great because every single day you're flying once, if not twice. Uh, and there's really, I mean, it was such an amazing feeling where you, you, you have a helmet bag uh, and you would grab it, you get your flight gear on, you'd walk out to the airplane and you're basically jumping into your own personal sports car. Right, so it's a fighter plane. It's out there. You start it up, and then you and your buddies will go out and do your training. And sometimes on a weekend, if you needed to get extra training, you could actually take the jet and, and tour the country. Right, so you might take off on a Friday, and I could fly to Dallas, Texas, and see my family for the weekend, and fly back on a Sunday. So I mean, it just was this very unique experience. And of course, when you're young you're really working hard just to make sure that you're really good in the plane. And then as you gain seniority, like you said, I did it for about 20 years. So the more senior you become, now it's about, again, how do you become a leader and, and able to teach others to do what they do? And so that's that's what led me ultimately. I'd flown in the United States for a couple of years. I had a combat tour where I flew fighter planes over Iraq uh, back in around the 2003, 2004 timeframe. And then because of that and my desire to want to be the best I could, that's when I got brought in to be a Top Gun instructor, which I did for about two and a half years. Got it. So when you're flying fighter planes in the U.S., you're flying to train. You're doing drills, you're working with your team, and all of that is to get you ready for an eventual combat tour? It could be. I mean, uh, there are those who've been blessed to maybe do their entire career and not have any combat. But I think you hit the the big point, which when you find yourself in the military, when you're in the military, you want to be as prepared as possible so that if you're called upon, you are ready to go. Uh, And that's where I think sometimes there's this disconnect because I know that when I spent time in the Pentagon or when I spent time, you know, talking, going around the country and talking about what I do, that there might be a belief in some places where, hey, if you're in the military, you really want to see combat. You want to go to war. That's, That's why you exist. And I would tell you, most of my friends, that's not what they're after. They, they do want to be the very best at whatever job they have. If you're a Navy SEAL, you want to be the very best Navy SEAL. If you're a fighter pilot, be the best fighter pilot. But it's largely incredibly important for us to do that because the better we are, it makes other countries around the world less likely to want to tangle with us. Interesting. So where, where did, because you mentioned this, that you became a Top Gun instructor, where, where did this fall into your timeline? Is- yeah, so, you know, that's, I think that, 
that's the beauty of being in the military is that it's not all just flying fighter planes all the time. You have chance to do different types of tours. So when I had finished my time in Iraq in the 2003 to 2005 timeframe, now basically it's a standard tour of duty, about three years in a fighter squadron, and you get an opportunity to go do something different. And a lot of my friends would go and teach new students how to fly the F-18. So they'd be an instructor pilot. And then there's another course you can take. You could be a test pilot, for example, or potentially after you become a test pilot, go be an astronaut. So you've got these different pathways that are available. And in my case, I really wanted to find a path to continue to to hone my craft, to be a better fighter pilot. And one of the paths available was to go through Top Gun as a student. And then they take a few of you from each class and then you, you can stay as an instructor. And so that's the path that I took. So that was probably in the 2005 to 2008 timeframe was when that occurred. So um, you take, and, it, and it's Top Gun so unique because it's not an organization that a lot of senior officers are in charge of. It's all the very junior officers who have just completed their very first tour in the Navy. You've had three to four years of experience, maybe in combat, but definitely flying and flying around aircraft carriers. And so you're very good at what you do. And now you come to Top Gun, which is located now in Fallon, Nevada. I think everyone, of course, remembers the very first movie when it was in Miramar, California, but uh, they had moved it to Fallon, Nevada. And uh, so you, you show up there and you're with a lot of like-minded fighter pilots. And so you, you band together and, and you continue to find ways to improve the community because that's, that's Top Gun's real role. You, we said that you would train the trainers. So you train all the other leaders who go out and teach fighter pilots how to be the best they can be. And you also come up with the ways that fighter pilots are gonna actually fight their aircraft. Wow. And so from being a Top Gun instructor, you then went back into the Pentagon? So right after leaving as a Top Gun instructor, they they invest in you as a Top Gun instructor. So they want you to do what's called a payback tour. So for my my payback tour was to go to Japan. Uh, I was in Japan for about three and a half years. And the importance of being in Japan is we call it the forward deployed naval force. And that means you have an entire air wing station in Japan. Uh, an air wing is is like a bigger squadron. So a squadron might have 12 fighter planes. And then the air wing is going to have four fighter squadrons. It's going to have an early warning aircraft squadron. It's going to have helicopter squadrons. So they're all part of this cohesive whole that goes out on the aircraft carrier together. And so we were there for about three and a half years. That meant that we patrolled the Indo-Pacific. So we would leave Japan, we would go off the coast of China, or we would go into port in South Korea or down to Australia and Philippines. So really got a chance to see the entirety of the Indo-Pacific. Once that tour was over, then I came back to uh, the United States and wound up ultimately at the Pentagon. And how does that happen? How do you wind up at the Pentagon? That's a, it's a very casual way to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I you think- know, I, uh, I, don't know, I just wound up at the Pentagon. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there's all, all roads lead to the Pentagon, I yeah. think, at some point. But so I guess there was one more stop. So you're right. I had left Japan. I had applied for a program I was really excited about. Uh, for 14 years, I'd wanted to be part of this program called the White House Fellows. And so it's a really amazing program. As the name implies, you know, the, the current administration is the one who sponsors it and they will cast a wide net. You can have a lot of people from around America apply. It's not just a military program. It's, it's largely not military. So men and women from around America can apply. They usually have around a thousand a year, throw their name in the, in the hat for it. And they ultimately, you'll do some interviews. I made it down to the very final selection. 
and there were about 30 of us competing at the national finalist level, and I was ultimately not selected. So the Navy kind of scrambled and said, okay, well, you're not going to go be a White House fellow. Where can we send you? So they wound up sending me to Newport, Rhode Island. There's a school there called the Naval War College. And the name, if you're not in the military, the name can sound a little alarming, but it really it's a, it's a one-year opportunity to go to have a little bit of downtime after being overseas for so long, after being on an aircraft carrier and doing other things. But it's a lot of reading. It's a lot of studying. And to your point earlier in the conversation, it's a chance for you to study conflict, to study how nations get into conflict, what did America learn from previous wars. And I think, once again, it gives you a really good chance to reflect. And, and I had done well. When I was there, and the person who runs the entire U.S. Navy was in need of a speechwriter to help them with, uh, you know, communicating to Congress, communicating to the American public, and so they asked if I'd be interested, and I said sure. So I went and interviewed, and ultimately was selected for the job. So that's how I got to the Pentagon for the first time. Wow! And what year is this? This would have been around 2012 to 2013. Yeah, and it was quick. I mean, I was there for maybe a year and a half. And while I was there, you know, just based on fate and timing, I was incredibly honored to be selected for command of my own squadron. So as you're, you know, we're kind of talking about the places I've been, but as you're in the military, the longer you're in, the you start to increase in your rank. So I mentioned earlier in our conversation, when I graduated from the Naval Academy, I had a rank, uh, the very first officer rank called Ensign. And then over time, you get promoted to lieutenant and lieutenant commander, so that's where I am at this stage. I've I finished the Naval War College. I'm a senior lieutenant commander. And now I'm in the Pentagon writing speeches for the leader of the U.S. Navy. And they take everyone who's, who's eligible to have command of their own squadron. And they'll compete. And then they'll take a small number and, and, and they'll say, congratulations. You know, you'll be promoted to commander, which I was. And then you'll, you'll be selected for your own Squadron, And so I found out that I was selected to return to Japan and to have my own squadron. So that's what brought me back to Japan. And I was there the second time for about two and a half years. So I'm fascinated by all of this, all the places that you've been and, and the ways that you've served and, and how varied it is. And I also can't help but think, how in the world do you have a semblance of a personal life? <laughs> when you live the way you know, yeah. it, that you've explained yeah. to me, you lived from 2002, essentially, to, I mean, if, what, 2017? Like, how, do you have a personal life? What do you do? Do you, do you hang out with your buddies from the aircraft carrier? How do you cultivate a life in the Persian Gulf or, or, or in Japan? How do you have a relationship? Like, because so much of this is about service and sacrifice, but what is your life aside from your military service while this is all going on? Right. When you think about the, this period of time, being in the Pentagon, going back to Japan for the second time, which will keep me there from around 2014 to 2016, and I'm married. Uh, my first son was born when I was a Top Gun instructor, so he was born in Nevada. My uh, second son, my middle child, was born in Japan during the first time. And my daughter, Natalie, was born while we were in Newport, Rhode Island, right? So now father of three. And of course, you can imagine Sarah, my wife, has been amazing throughout this entire process. Because just like you mentioned, I mean, I make this point in the book, but it is, it's so easy to live your dreams when someone else is paying the bill. 
And when you think about this kind of military service where you're gone a lot, where you're on board an aircraft carrier, sometimes physically separated for eight or nine months straight, you may not see your your family for nine months. Um, you know, they're the ones who really wind up paying the bill because, you know, dad's gone. Uh, where is dad? What, you know, and, and mom, of course, or your spouse has a huge burden to not only take care of the family, some of them, of course, you have a lot of working spouses, and so they have to juggle a lot of things, and it can become pretty complicated. And I think the best way I, I heard it put was when I was in the Pentagon the second time around. This is the job that brought me there to work for Secretary Mattis, and a buddy of mine who I'd gone to the academy with handed me an article, and basically it said, if you want to be successful in life, you need to think about five things, and that's uh, work, sleep, friends, family, and fun. So those are kind of like the five major elements. And it's like, if you want to be successful, pick two, because those are the only two things you're really going to be able to focus on. And we always joked that, I mean, especially being on an aircraft carrier or being in the Pentagon, working for a guy like Secretary Mattis, it was basically you're, you're focused on work and sleep because that's really all you had time for. And so you'd find time, like when we were at the Naval War College in Rhode Island, those were the periods of time dedicated to giving you and your family a chance to catch your breath. You spoke about eventually being connected with Mattis. How did that happen? And and what were you doing working with him? Sure. So I, I had actually just returned to the United States with my family. Um, and it's now the beginning of 2017. And so, of course, the Trump administration had... Uh, been sworn in. Mattis is now in the role as Secretary of Defense. I'm actually in a job in Norfolk, Virginia, working for a two-star admiral. And a longtime mentor of mine, someone who had retired from the Navy, but he was a three-star admiral, so a very senior individual, and someone who I, I deeply admire and respect, he called on a weekend and, and said, Mattis is looking for someone who can help run his speech team. Uh, he needs people now. Can would you be interested? Could you do it? And, you know, I took a deep breath because as I'm looking, you know, I'm in the living room when I take this call and as I'm looking at my young kids and at Sarah, we had just moved from Japan. So we came from halfway around the country and we'd only been there about two and a half months. And so here comes this next call to potentially uproot the family and serve. But it, uh, there's no mistaking it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Mattis was a bit of a legend and a myth within the military, someone who I respect and, and a lot of people deeply respect. And so the chance to go work for him. What's the legend? What's the myth? Because I'm not in the military. I yeah. don't know. You know, um, he's unique because he is widely perceived. There's a lot of memes on the internet of him. Uh, he's perceived as a warrior poet, someone who is a very effective Marine, can be a very hard person to work for, but reads a ton. I mean, at one point he had someone somewhere about 7,000 books in his personal library. So he has read a ton. He understands a lot about the world. He has a lot of friends all over the place. And so the military at that point in time kind of idolizes this guy. I mean, when you think about 3 million people in the military and there's maybe a dozen who most everybody in the military knows their name and knows their reputation. And he was one of those. So to be in Virginia, to receive this call, to asking if I go work with Mattis, it, it I knew it'd be a strain on me and the family, but it felt like a no-brainer to at least take the interview. And so I did. I went up to the Pentagon and interviewed for the job. And maybe two or three days later, they they called and said, how fast can you get here? And so because we had just moved the kids, I wound up going to Washington, D.C. by myself for about three or four months as a geographic bachelor. 
and uh, just rented a you know basement up there. And so Sarah stayed with the kids in Virginia so they could finish out the semester, and then they came up as well. But that's how that's how I wound up in Mattis's office and got started on that pathway. And you mentioned the book. You wrote a book. Uh, the title is Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. And you mentioned how Secretary Mattis is so revered as a man of respect and law and perspective. And obviously, we've lost a lot of those things in the current administration. And we are seeing disasters with some of the actions that Trump is ordering the military to take. And I have spoken behind the scenes to some of the people who I'm still close to who work at pretty high levels of the U.S. military who are pretty horrified and are deeply committed to holding the line and trying to preserve America's position and dignity despite the chaos that is Mm. currently happening. And you talk about that chaos. You talk about disinformation and a complete lack of strategy that, that the administration veers from one decision to the next. And there's very little thought for consequences that, that senior officials are really scrambling constantly to try to hold this thing together in the face of the president's whims and at times irrational orders. What, I'm just like, I'm sitting here looking at you thinking like, what in God's name is this like for you as a, as a longstanding military serviceman to, to witness all of this? I was flabbergasted, right? So there's a scene in the book in chapter six where I describe meeting President Trump for the first time. And I was the one. So so my role with Mattis was to come in, and initially I was his chief speechwriter, right? So, you know, my job was to anything he would say publicly, anything he would write to Congress, or, you know, when he, we would go overseas, that's, that was my job was to work with my speechwriting team and produce that and make his job as easy as possible. And then after being there for a few months, I got elevated to the role of director of communications, which was much more broad in, in its expanse. So by this point in time, we're talking July of 2017, we are now going to give President Trump his very first briefing at the Pentagon about the importance of your military. And we knew from talking to Secretary Mattis and, and the Secretary of State at the time, Secretary Rex Tillerson, the president didn't have a lot of knowledge about the military or international affairs you know, he had a lot of opinions, but not a lot of knowledge about it. So, we're, you know, this is like the grand plan. We're going to bring President Trump to the Pentagon, and you're going to have a lot of these very senior leaders help educate him, show him the importance of America's military. And uh, as I described in the book, it does not go well. And you have a president who had no interest in really, or or not even interest, he just didn't care about the fact that America has a longstanding, you know, set of allies around the country, like Japan, England, uh, France. I mean, there's all these countries that since World War II, we've been a part of this big international community. And I think that's something that as you do that comparison between administrations, you know, President Obama knew all too well the importance of having those alliances because we're stronger when we band together and we can speak with one voice. And and especially like you, we've alluded to in this conversation you know, America has long stood for those types of values. 
you may look back with perfect hindsight 2020 and say, well, we should not have taken that course of action. But I've always felt very confident that when we took a big course of action, it's for the right reasons. And so to be in the room with, you know, those senior leaders, Vice President Pence, President Trump, the Secretary of the Treasury, I mean, all these heavy hitters, and they're doing their level best to teach the president about why these various functions are important, why the economy is important, why why having a military force around the world is important. And he's just like, I could care less. I want to do a military parade down Pennsylvania Avenue. Hey, did you see when I was in France and I shook President Macron's hand? Man, he would never let go. And And you find yourself wondering, like, what is going on here? And he started talking about leaks from the White House. I mean, it was everything but the importance of America and the importance of America's forces. And you know, that's how I end the chapter. And it's and it's it's an honest assessment. When I left the room and went back to my office, I was white because I could not have imagined that, you know, you think that there's a public persona, but you just don't realize that that might actually be how someone is behind closed doors. I'm just aghast. I mean, I, I know because I see it and I read everything about everything I can get my hands on really every day, but it is just so shocking. Something that just struck me listening to you explain the conversation you all attempted to have with him is that not only does he not care, but he doesn't know how to listen. And the idea that a person who is tasked with running a global superpower whose position should be maintaining peace and putting the world forward, the world, not just us, but the world, because as you mentioned, when we support each other, the world gets stronger, the world gets better, that he doesn't even know how to listen to voices in the room that carry critical information. It frightens me that he's not desirous of an education in the position that he's found himself in. Right. And in the popular perception. There have been plenty of stories out there. Like you said, I'm, I'm like you. I read everything I can get my hands on. And, you know, it's true. I mean, this is a president who does not read. He doesn't, he doesn't read. He doesn't read books. He doesn't read history. When the intelligence community would will bring him briefings or to let him know what's really going on around the world, he doesn't read it. Or he, or he might read it and wants to dismiss it. And so to have been there in the room, to be there firsthand and to as you just said, I mean, you, you, I, I've always pictured, and that's why I walked out pale, because I'd always pictured, you know, a lot of gravitas, whether it was Obama or Bush um, or Clinton. I mean, just th- this is the president of the United States of America, and they're going to be well-read. They're going to be very educated on the topic at hand. They want their best advisors to give options. And then from those options, they're going to pick the way forward. And so to be in a room where that's not the case, and where the conversation's more along the lines of, you know, how he was personally slighted by another world leader or how we're in Iraq and so we need to basically steal all their oil in reparations for, you know, fighting terrorism on their soil. And you kind of, you know, the first time you hear it, you think, okay, he's joking, but he's not. He's not. I mean, it's really what he thinks. It's really how he behaves and acts behind closed doors. And when you only have two dozen people who are incredibly senior in a room, I mean, they're not putting on a show. I mean, this is who they really are. And I think that's that's what I found to be so alarming about that scenario. And of course, also in the book, I talk about the second time he came to the Pentagon, which went very much like the first time. So that's that's where we are in in the current moment. 
Obviously, everyone's lives have changed drastically between when we last spoke and and us speaking today. And I am curious for you, uh, as we're talking about your professional life and, and what you've witnessed, how are things for you? It's funny, the last time you and I had a chance to chat back in January, you know, if you recall, I was pretty circumspect during our conversation. You know, I'd recently retired from the U.S. military. I didn't necessarily feel comfortable kind of calling the balls and strikes, if you will, for, you know, members in the public eye, someone like the president or the vice president or cabinet members. I think what we've seen over the interceding nine, 10 months has certainly demonstrated that, you know, you're seeing more and more patriots speak out at this point in time. And I think that's critically important because, you know, look, it's our country and we do need to find a way to unite. You know, it's funny because I'm a student of history myself. The boss that I served most recently, former Secretary of Defense James Mattis, is a well-known, you know, as they call him, a warrior scholar, the warrior monk. And so when you when you study history, you know, you always find yourself kind of looking backwards to say, okay, yes, it feels very politically tense right now. There's a lot of hate and discontent being thrown about. And, and it's easy to kind of go back to, okay, well, that was the 70s or that. But when you really take a further look back, I mean, when can you find such a fractious period of time where the president of the United States is the one who's creating the crisis? So that's where it's, it's fascinating for me. A large part of my family lives in North Texas. Um, and they have very conservative values. And so, okay, I can, I can understand and appreciate many of those values. But what I can't understand is how such a large cross-section of the country is willing to kind of abandon their own moral compass to embrace someone who, through their actions, not just their words, but through their actions, have proven, as this president has, that he doesn't ascribe to those same types of, you know, he doesn't care about integrity, doesn't care about character. Um, and so, you know, there's just so many things that that line of reasoning opens up as, if, as you really start thinking about, well, where is this taking our country? Because I think as you and I grew up, I mean, a lot of times, whether you agreed or disagreed with the president who was in office, you could still say they were presidential and you could still say they were someone that uh, maybe you disagree with their policies, but largely you could say, uh, I would feel comfortable with my children looking to that individual for a measure of what we should aspire to become. And I think that the first time, at least in my adult life, that certainly that is no longer the case. Uh, and I think that that's the part, like you said, that it's very attention grabbing. Yeah, I, I think something that feels really important to highlight for folks is having conversations that are this frank. People, as you stated over the last year in particular, who've been willing to get up and voice the truth and voice dissent and ring the alarm bells, this is not about being alarmist. This is about sounding an alarm because it's a crisis. I, I think that there's a lot of people who have this strange assumption that, oh, it can't happen here. This is America. We have rules. And there's a lot of people in, in my personal experience who have not been taking what is happening here seriously enough. And I'm curious if you think that realizing that that truth is um, is one that's been hard for people to wrap their heads around. Do you think that's why so many people 
who've worked in this administration and left so many people who uh, have held government position under 45 and left are all really coming forward and getting honest that this is a moment where we either pick country or we don't. This this isn't about party. It's country over party right now. D- does that ring true for you coming from, as you said, a more conservative background? You know, it's really interesting because when we spoke nine, 10 months ago, um, I had just released my first book, uh, Holding the Line. And it, and it described what I was a first, you know, my firsthand account of what I'd witnessed when I was working for Secretary of Defense James Mattis and, and just how difficult it was to work within the Trump administration. And because of that, I was able to basically share some insights and, and talk about a little bit more about how Mattis truly felt about the president he served, because it, it really is a chaotic environment. And then you fast forward uh, to just a few weeks ago when I released my second book, uh, which really is a lot more fun. It's taking a look at my time as a Top Gun instructor, right? So part of this elite institution of naval aviators, much like Navy SEALs, Delta Force, et cetera, right? You have these small units with branches of the military. And the reason why I bring that up is because one of the persistent questions I get asked with a lot of my recent public speaking or appearances is, you know, if you've written a book on leadership and you've written a book about your experiences as a Top Gun instructor, what do you make of the military's kind of recent break with President Trump? Uh, This all started really, I think it came to a head in in early June when President Trump used what appeared to be uh, military or policing force, of course, to clear uh, Lafayette Square, walk across the street, hold up the Bible. And of course, that's been covered ad nauseum. But the result was that you had so many men and women who had achieved senior levels of, of positions within the U.S. military or within President Trump's own cabinet who had left the administration. And normally, they take almost a vow of silence. Uh, there's this widespread perspective that when you have served in uniform, because it's a nonpartisan institution, you serve either a Republican or a Democratic president equally. It doesn't matter what your own personal politics are. You check those at the door. You do what's best for the country. So it was very noteworthy when a many of these individuals felt very compelled to to write op-eds, to go on TV. In fact, just yesterday, I believe it was, or maybe this morning, I mean, you had uh, General Stanley McChrystal, who's also written a lot about leadership from a, the lens of a military leader, who came out and formally endorsed Vice President Joe Biden for President of the United States. That's very rare in military circles. It's something that when it happens, usually people get called out for. And when you see so many individuals who are normally very nonpartisan and how they deal with politics, willing to come out and say that what you're seeing with President Donald Trump is not the kind of country we should aspire to be. It doesn't embrace the values. It doesn't embrace the morality. It doesn't embrace the racial equality. Everything that that has been coming to a head under the first three and a half years of his presidency, um, we need to get back to more normalcy and we need to reenter the world community and take our retake our leadership role that we used to have under President Trump's predecessors, like President Obama, Bush, and beyond. So yes, I think it's very noteworthy that so many people who would normally never speak up are doing so. And I also think it's incredibly noteworthy. And it's very rare that so many people who've worked for a sitting president are coming out and speaking against him. And I am curious, as you said, we had a conversation at the beginning of the year. Uh, We didn't know that a pandemic was about to reach our shores. On the more personal end of the spectrum, how... How are things for you? What is happening in your life? Did did the pandemic open up the space for you to write your latest book? I'm I'm curious how how it's been 
for you at home? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, one of the benefits of having had a uh, background in the military, having served for two decades as a fighter pilot, was that uh, my wife is amazing, Sarah, and my three children, you know, they, they came up uh, in a situation where you move every year and a half, two years. Uh, the only constant in their lives was change. And so I think that from a, from a family standpoint, we were incredibly well-equipped because of our experiences together uh, when the pandemic hit. And that caused, it forced many, you know, of course, millions of families into virtual learning, into a, a complete just sea change in how we operate in our daily lives. Uh, Sarah and the children were able to adapt very quickly. I would say, though, that that's, again, going back to just the state of affairs we're in, it's, it's interesting. And I thought Vice President Biden made a really excellent point when he could interject one in the last debate. And that was, um, you, have to get, you have to get past the pandemic before you can really get to a situation where the economy can recover, where everything can take off. And I think that's not just for our nation. That's in our own individual lives. That's with our families as well. Um, you know, you keep hearing when you listen to medical practitioners, Dr. Fauci and others, the timeline for a vaccine, the timeline to to create a credible pathway in the medical community to actually overcome this virus is, is longer than what we're hearing from the politicians. And so the danger there is, of course, uh, let me take a step back. I'd say that as a fighter pilot, one of the things we were always trained to do was debrief every single flight we were a part of. So, and we, in fact, we'd say that's the most important part of the flight. So you would brief it, you know, like you and I would get together in a briefing room. We would discuss the, the mission and about what we're about to accomplish. We'd jump, you know, into our flight gear. We'd, we'd climb into our cockpits and we'd take off. And we would conduct our mission, whether it was air to air or air to ground. And then when we'd land, you'd take off your flight gear and now you head back and that's when you debrief. And that's so critically important because that's where you really learn the lessons. And not only do you learn the lessons from that flight, but you apply them in a very conscious way to what you're going to do tomorrow the next week, the next month, forever. So that's where I think there's been a huge failure yet again, is that even early on when there were, when there were key pieces of information coming out, and of course we've heard because of the Woodward tapes and book that the, the severity of the pandemic was much more knowable and the president knew exactly what was going on way early on and just uh, misled the American public. That that's the danger is that, there were so many different intervening months where we could have had this off at the past. We could have unified the nation to do what we've now learned are three or four very easy steps to slow the spread. And you could have potentially, uh, not only for my family, for your family, for, for, you know, but for millions of families around this country, we could have made their lives so much easier if there had been just those appropriate steps put in place to help mitigate the spread. Right. Especially in terms of a national response, because, Certain states trusted the science, went into lockdowns, enacted precautions, but with people traveling the way that we do, it didn't really make enough of a difference for a lot of people. And and it's incredibly enraging to me, and I know so many of us, as you mentioned with the Woodward tapes, to hear Trump say it's airborne, it's deadly, it's so much more severe than a flu, Bob. This thing is like the plague. If it gets you, you're done. And then to be on stages talking to the American public and saying that this was a hoax, it was a democratic hoax, it was a an attempt at election interference. 
I mean, the gall to say such a thing about, by the way, not just something killing American citizens, but a global pandemic, a disease that is killing people all over the world. It, it was such a show to me as a person who's done some pretty deep dives into psychology because, you know, my job requires that I can understand the thinking of other human beings in order to learn to think like them at work. It was the most blatant show of extreme narcissism I'd ever seen. For one man to say, this is all happening so people can say I'm bad at my job. Uh, it was almost laughable because he is so bad at his job, but but astonishing that, you know, people were dying around the world and he was saying this was an attack on him. Right. And, and so, again, if you take it back just to pure leadership, I think you make an ex you make such an excellent point. And that is, you know, a, one of the jobs that a leader performs is really kind of multifaceted, right? So first and foremost, the role of a leader is to help encourage others around you to accomplish more than you would given your own, left to your own devices, right? So uh, if I'm if I'm fairly lazy, if I don't want to get the job done, but then here comes someone who's inspiring and, and propels me to greater heights, that is what a leader, uh, the positive role a leader can have. And so that's what's so frustrating is because I think you you said something very insightful, and that is when you have a large portion of the country that wants to rely on the science um, and, and understands that this is a global pandemic and we need to do our part in it, you have another part of the country that thought that it truly was a hoax, that it was fake, that it was blown up in order to try and harm this president. That's where the leadership comes in. So if you were, you know, and again, getting back to what a debrief looks like, if you were to rewind the clock and go back to the February or even March timeframe, could you imagine if President Trump had taken to the podium at the White House and said, you know, my fellow Americans, we are facing a pandemic. Um, we have not yet seen it take off in the United States, but I need all Americans to embrace these four simple steps. And here's what we're going to do. And so you already had the men and women who believed in the science of the matter. Now you'd bring along all of your followers, and I use that term deliberately, right? All your followers who will will listen to you. And so they may not normally have wanted to give up individual liberty in order to wear a mask or socially distance, but because the President of the United States is asking them to do so, then you get to the desired result, not only for you as the president, but for the entire nation. And frankly, that's what's so fascinating about President Trump is he will routinely take self-defeating positions. Because if he had unified the country, if we had overcome the virus at a rate that was equal to or better than Europe or Asia or other places, he could claim that as a victory. He'd be going into this re-election saying, look at what my administration truly you know, conducted, what we, what we were able to accomplish. And instead, it's just a complete mess. And then to your other point, which I think is also spot on, to blame everybody else for any shortcomings. Again, that, that is so far afield from what a leader really is genuinely supposed to be, which is someone who's humble enough to say, if I made a mistake, that's my fault, but yet we can still correct it and we can move forward and still achieve the, the results we want. Yeah. And, and it's odd to me that there's no rationality in the argument, because as you said, even for people who aren't fans of his policies, which clearly I'm not, if he had responded well on this, I would be thrilled. I would be thrilled to say, you know what? I don't like what he's doing with the courts, and I think what he's doing to the environment is atrocious, but he did us a solid on this pandemic. And why you wouldn't want your critics to see you as a leader, why, why you 
why you double down and say, well, if you leave out the blue states, if you leave out the Democrat-run cities, we're doing well. That's not true. The case is surging in the Dakotas, in Montana, you know, in in red states, in places that he won, people are dying. And we had, on the day you and I are talking, over 204,000 Americans are dead from COVID-19. It's, it's a 9-11 every two and a half days. We're on track to lose 400,000 people by the end of the year. And he's saying he did a great job and that, you know, if at the debate, he said if Biden had been president, it would have been worse. And I just kept thinking when H1N1 hit our shores because President Obama and Vice President Biden had not defunded the pandemic response network at the CDC, which Donald Trump did, they were able to keep H1N1 deaths in one year under 13,000 people. It was over just a little over 12,000 people. That's devastating to America. That's 12,000 mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and sisters and friends. And, and, to, and to say that 204,000 deaths in six months is somehow a far greater success than 12,000 deaths in the course of a year when something completely then was eradicated because of the quality of the response. I, I'm just, I'm dumbfounded that we even entertain these kinds of topics in conversation. And so that's, and that's the, the norm shattering role that history will look back on with President Donald Trump is the fact that rule of law did not hold sway that, uh, you know, you could lie, you could, there's just so many socially acceptable norms, not only within our own American society, but what we expect of our elected leaders that have been shattered. And it's not that it's hyperbole or it's not that you take something and, you know, I mean, every politician wants to accentuate their positives. They want to minimize their negatives. They want to do the opposite for those that that they're running against. So we all get that. But what's so dangerous is when you have someone who's willing to mislead the American public on such a widespread scale. And so you have an ongoing pandemic. And another thing you touched on at the very beginning, which I, I do think we should spend a little time thinking about, and that is the upcoming election. You know, we're, we're essentially uh, about a month away at this stage. And when you think about the fact that you have the president of the United States leading the charge that no matter the outcome, it will be a, uh, you know, election that ultimately will become contested because he's convincing everybody or seeking to convince everyone that, you know, that there's so much fraud and abuse happening in the electoral system when even his own FBI director and others are coming out and saying, look, that that is not there. It doesn't show that. That's that's not been a systemic issue in American electoral system throughout our history. So while we should always remain vigilant, it doesn't mean that that's happening here, nor do we expect it to happen here. But he wants to already, uh, and he's been doing this for a few months now, you know, start to undercut the peaceful transfer of power and everything else. And, and I, I still go back to the fact that that all Americans aren't up in arms saying this is not the role of the president of the United States to call into question our democratic systems, to call into, into question, you know, whether or not my vote will count. I mean, that is absolutely so far afield, regardless of your politics. That I think whether you're on the right or left side of the aisle, that should, that should bother all of us equally. Yes, I agree. I agree. And, and it's, it's shocking to me to see how he's managed to make this political infighting sp- 
spirited in the sense of a playground fight. It feels so childish. It, what I'm watching when people say, yeah, who cares about the norms? We just want our guy to win. It feels a little bit like child's play. Like, oh, well, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. It's it's <laughs> so unbelievably crass and and I think beneath us. And it's been interesting, as you mentioned, to see so many people attempt to remind us as a citizenry of what's really at stake, you know, of of the true disrespect for democracy we see when when the first president in history says he will not adhere to a peaceful transfer of power should he lose the election. And you shared an article recently on Twitter that I read and Trump's former Coast Guard chief endorsed Vice President Biden. And the letter was signed by nearly 200 other retired senior leaders also endorsing Biden. And they said in this open letter, we love our country. Unfortunately, we also fear for it. And they go on to talk about how President Trump and his, as they wrote, disdainful attitude and his failures um, due to those things, our allies no longer trust or respect us and our enemies no longer fear us. As a service member, should that ring a greater alarm bell to the general American public? Well, yes, I I, I think it should. Uh, Again, I think the way you conduct yourself in office, the way you conduct yourself in the public realm matters. It matters deeply, not only because you're in a position of a power and authority over other Americans who put you there. I mean, you should be accountable to us. Um, but you also have a responsibility to serve as an example for who you want those following in your footsteps to be, right? Uh, what values should we ascribe to? What um, style of government you know, do we choose to have? And so once again, you can get away from the policy aspects. I mean, I love the stories that came out recently on upon the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? The fact that she was almost ideologically the opposite of Antonin Scalia, but they had a long, deep, abiding friendship that transcended their politics or transcended their views on the Constitution. And so, again, I think that's that's the style of America we have to find our way to get back to. And I say that because, you know, one of the roles that I played in the U.S. military as a senior leader was, was as a strategist, right? I mean, you're, you know, part of the job of the military is to look outside the borders of the United States of America and to keep an eye, you know, work with our allies and partners abroad, but also to keep an eye on those who would seek to compete with this, which of course happens on a daily basis. And then of course, should conflict arise, you know, who, who would you actually go to, into conflict with? And that's something that has concerned me, you know, concerned me during the first two years when I was working with Secretary Mattis in the Trump administration. Uh, it's concerned me even more since then, over the last year and a half or so, in that while we're so internally distracted, while, I mean, we, can, we can't even get over this pandemic, which is something that based on some easy steps we can take, we should be able to do in a fairly rapid fashion, at least get it controllable so we can focus elsewhere. Um, you know, China, Russia, others truly enjoy, they like what they're seeing because most empires, most nations that that suffer long-term downfalls or conflict is because you start to erode from within. And so I think a lot of what we've kind of been dancing around throughout our conversation is the fact that America's, uh, it, we're facing one of those tipping points right now, which is what do you see not only the next four years looking like, but those next four years will determine what the next two to three decades will look like. Is this 
does America say that what we've seen in this style of government, uh, the way that, that President Trump conducts himself, do we repudiate it and say that, no, we need to rise above, we need to restore our democratic principles, and we need to become a beacon for the world yet again? Or do we succumb and simply perpetuate what we've witnessed for the last three and a half years? And that puts us even further behind. And I really do think that it is that stark of a choice. It's dangerous because many, um, unfortunately, I think there, there have been some groups like, of course, the Republican Party who have embraced President Trump because I think they see it as a vehicle to get things done. You know, the Russians have this saying about leaders that they like, you know, and, and this was used early on when there was concerns about Russian influence in the 2016 election. And that is, you know, that there are useful idiots. And I do think that there's an element of the Re- Republican Party looking at Donald Trump as, hey, this guy's a useful idiot. And I hate to say that he's our commander in chief. You know, I mean, I could never have fathomed saying this about any of our previous presidents. But look, he gets out there, he blusters. He he obviously doesn't understand the depths of policy. He's proven through his actions and his words that he doesn't care about any of that stuff. So the Republican Party, while President Trump's in power and should he win re-election, they see it, an avenue to continue to further what. The, but what have you given up by pursuing that path? And I think that we need to take we need to take a much broader view of the America we live in, the America we're all a part of, um, instead of just being very narrowly focused on my policy positions and does his reelection help me or not. It is a wild time to realize how much people have dug in their heels on this idea that they deserve to get every single thing they want and damn the man who stands in their way. This, this sort of individualism is really surprising to me. And, you know, I... I had the great pleasure of working in the Obama-Biden administration on certain initiatives, you know, working as a surrogate, really getting out there and campaigning on in terms of things like healthcare reform and girls' education. And something that's really surreal to me is that what seems to have happened over the last four years is this idea that everyone is willing to sort of cannibalize their own being our own citizens to win and you know in in this most recent campaign to get to our nominee uh i actually was really on i was on the warren train i think she's brilliant i think she would do incredible reform work that we really need particularly in terms of the economy um but I also am an enormous fan of Senator Harris. I'm I'm honored to live in California and and you know be represented by her and I'm I am a big fan of the vice president. And and so I've had to have some conversations where people on quote my side are a bit apathetic because they didn't get you know Julian Castro or Andrew Yang or Elizabeth Warren as their candidate. And the thing I keep coming back to is we don't marry our presidents. We're not looking for our perfect partner. We're looking for leaders and we owe it to our fellow citizens to take their needs into account. And it's meaningful to me that folks I've sat down with in Oklahoma and in Ohio and in New Hampshire say, you know, we really believe in President Biden. That's the guy we want to vote for. That's the guy we want to see as president. Um, who am I to say, well, forget it. I'm not going to vote for your guy because I'm not getting exactly what I want. It's so infantile and temper tantrumy. And, you know, 
to me, my hope is that we can get back to a place where we're willing to compromise with each other because us as a, as a group of citizens infighting means we're not paying attention to what's happening at the top. And one of my favorite journalists, uh, Sarah Kenzier, said, Trump has no interest in ruling America. He wants to hack it up and sell it to the highest bidders for parts. He's looking at increasing his wealth only as his motivation to hold that office. And, and you know, he constantly lies to the American people and says his family's lost so much money when we know for a fact that just Jared Kushner and Ivanka, of money we can trace, we know that since they they got into the White House with President Trump, they've made upwards of $385 million in profit mm-hmm. um, in three and a half years. And again, that's the money we can trace. Uh, they're... You know, President Trump's golf trips have cost the American taxpayers upwards of $145 million, and that's money we're spending at his golf courses and his, you know, on his airplane and, and these things. So it's it's really kind of surreal that we're not getting honest about what's at stake. And I wonder, how do you think, as a thought leader as a service member, how do you think we can get through to people to see that kind of danger, to see, as you said, that we're beginning to fall from the inside as a republic, that we are the greatest enemies to our own democracy right now? Is, is, there, is there a message that you think is really getting through to people? You know, I'd love to be aspirational and say, Sophia, Absolutely right? That there's this message or two messages that we can really, you know, find a way to make it more widespread. And that's going to change a lot of people's perceptions. And, and one of the most telling statistics that came out from the first debate, the first presidential debate was that um, there was broad agreement that most people were displeased with what they saw. Um, they thought it was, a, it was a sad state of affairs for America. The other one was that 98% said that nothing they saw changed their mind. Two, 2% said that, yes, it would. Um, tellingly, of the 2% that said that they would change how they're going to vote, they went from Trump to Biden. But one of the things, you know, getting back to just, there's such an importance about what right looks like. Um, leadership by example. And so when you had President Obama in office, there were, there were certainly millions, if not tens of millions of people who disagreed with his policies or with his administration's policies. But you know what? I don't think anybody can look back and say that guy was not presidential. He was very presidential. President George W. Bush during the 9-11 period of time, I mean, had to seize the moment and serve as an example for the rest of the nation. And I think was a good example of how you could at least pull people together in unity and say that we're going to get through this together as one country. And, you know, one of the things when we were talking about uh, whether it's Ivanka and Jared or whether it's the president himself, Something that I always appreciated with my own military background, but certainly, and I saw this in a very, very stark and real way with Secretary Mattis, is this concept that as a leader, you have to avoid the appearance of impropriety, right? So sure, you can get close to the line on a legal or ethical matter. You could maybe even you know, put your toe up to that line now and again, as long as you don't break the law. That's not the point. The point is, as a leader, you're setting the tone for your organization, in this case, for the country. You should get far away from that line as you can. So why would you put yourself in such a bad situation, to your point, um, having you know military members compelled to stay at his hotels when they travel? Why would you 
even accept foreign leaders staying in your hotel, which uh, starts bringing in questions about the emoluments clause. I mean, there's just all these issues that have been brought about because of bad decision-making. And, and again, we'd be in a completely different place, I believe, much more focused on the issues at hand. What do we want? What do we care about for policies if the president himself had, had made, one, better decisions, and then two, made sure that those decisions were embraced by those in his cabinet and beyond. So uh, again, that's just a fundamental tenet of leadership that we're not seeing right now. And so I don't know that there's any compelling argument you can make. I have worked you know, not only as a kind of a strategist, but also someone with a background in strategic communications. I have, I have sought to have conversations with family members and others, like I'm sure we all have, with people who have very strongly held ideological views. And we're, we're, we really are just kind of at a phase where um, I believe what I believe and no one will shake that. Um, and one thing that does play into this, and, and regardless of where you fall on that side of the aisle, is that um, media it's challenging because it has become uh, like a mix of news and entertainment. And I do think that there are some, you know, I guess the better way to put that is that, you know, everyone should realize that it, it, you, you'll be better served if you seek out a wide variety of opinion, you know, don't pick one channel as your favorite channel. That's the only thing you'll ever watch because then you're only simply getting one side of the story. So something that I've always sought to do is, uh, whether I'm watching Fox News or I'm watching MSNBC, CNN, uh, NBC, et cetera. I mean, it's like get a wide variety of opinions, cross-check that about what you know to be true, you know, seek out facts, not just opinions. Um, all of that remains true. And I, and I, my hope would be that as we get back to a situation in this country where you have fundamentally sound leaders running the country, that Americans can kind of compare and contrast and, and maybe throw off, you know, that almost cult-like style of leadership where you say, whoa, you know, I can't believe that I actually fell for that for four years. How, how did that, how did that, how did we as a nation arrive at that place? But then how did I as an individual arrive at that spot? And you can say, look, now we've got some really great leaders. Let's get, let's get back to the governance of the country and get away from all this distraction. I would like to ask, you know, in terms of distraction and, and disrespect for the office, something that I imagine felt very personal to you because it sure as hell felt personal to me, and and I've only ever existed in military spaces as a as a support, you know, doing USO tours and the like. But for you, having held such high office in the United States military, I can't fathom what it must have been like to have heard the reports that President Trump called veterans suckers and losers that he wanted to have military parades, but not with anyone who had been disfigured in the military, because in his words, people don't like to see that. To, to, to think about the way he so publicly and viciously made fun of a disabled reporter, that doesn't shock me. To know the way that he's spoken about his own citizens, uh, I'm not surprised that he thinks of the people uh, who he is the commander in chief of being suckers and losers. I'm upset about it, but I, I really want to know how that felt as a person who served. What is it like to reckon with the commander in chief speaking about his own service members that way? Well, look, I mean, you've had so many millions of men and women who have dedicated some portion of their lives to serving their nation in uniform or even as a civilian. 
in the military, right? I mean, there's there's also millions of civilians who have served um, to make this country better. And you're right. It, you know, when you hear reports of the commander in chief saying things with such disdain, um, I think it's it's twofold, right? Not only does it diminish the sacrifices that they, and not only just them, but their families have made. I mean, I would tell you, I had a blast in two decades. I got to fly fighter jets for the United States Navy, right? I mean, I'm flying off an aircraft carrier. I'm a top gun instructor. That's a blast. My family, however, had to deal with family separations of six to eight months. You know, we hear these stories all the time about, you know, people who will go back to Afghanistan or Iraq on a continual basis because they care so deeply. They want to be in a position to make a difference for America. And so, if you hear about your commander in chief undercutting your service, um, that's tragic. I think what's even more tragic about those stories is the fact that across the board, people can kind of, they just kind of shrug and say, yeah, that sounds exactly like something he would say. Right. So again, as a leader, why you would ever put yourself in that situation where the way you behave, the way you conduct yourself such that something like this coming out and everyone goes, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, it just, again, it, it just, you know, in some respects, words fail me that, that you could have someone who is leading our country who would not seek to be, you know, even as Ronald Reagan put it, right, like that shining beacon on a hill. And whether we're talking about America as a country or his role as president of the United States, you know, once again, I mean, public service is a public trust. And if you find yourself in a position where you're either appointed to serve in the U.S. government or you've run for election and, and now you're actually elected to office, it's a public trust. You you have a responsibility to the men and women in America that you represent, that you lead. You know, even if that's not your normal state of being, I mean, pull together for for a few and and be your very best self. Because not only are you leading people, but you've also got young the younger generation of public servants who are watching to see what's acceptable and unacceptable. I've got my children. You know, I was incredibly proud to have all three of my children who are fairly young right? The oldest is 13 and my daughter's about to turn nine. And absolutely watch this first debate. Now, I think in hindsight, I kind of wish they hadn't seen it, but I mean, it was important to me because it, we are in such a, you know, a, a very fractious part of this country right now. This is democracy at work. And, and it's just so important that we get everyone um, engaged, not only for this election cycle, but in cycles moving forward. So I don't know about you. I, I want to talk about more about fighter jets and fun stuff. <laughs> I that's mean, that's what I was so crazy. I know. That's what I was going to say. Won't it be nice when we can go back to talking about things that are exciting? I know. You know, hopefully in 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 a month we'll we'll write the ship. But that is something I do want to talk about. And you know, we've we've certainly got it in the interview from from the first half. But in in the interim between when we last spoke and. And us speaking today, you mentioned that you published your second book, uh, Top Gun's Top 10, Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. I love this. I I want to know about it. I want, I do want to have, you know, some of the sort of bright and shiny and fun and exciting conversations, you know, not not just <laughs> talking about how, <laughs> how stressed we are and what it feels like to watch our republic implode. So of all the reviews that I read, one really stood out to me. Somebody called it the leadership version of Chicken Soup for the Soul, which I loved. What, A, does that feel accurate? And B, with all of this incredible hostility that we've been discussing that 2020 has brought with it, 
Was your hope in writing this book to put some positivity in the world, to remind people of what leadership can look like, to, you know, to give us a North Star in a dark time? Oh, absolutely. 100%. In fact, uh, I, I had seen that review as well, and I loved it, right? Um, I loved it for a couple of reasons. One, it meant that, that it's a book that's an easy read. It's relatable, right? My intent was not to write a book about fighter pilots for other fighter pilots. I think that that would have been um, kind of a, a waste of, of time. In fact, you know, but I do think that when, so one of the things I loved about my military experience is that you are, you're, you're given a point of entry to meeting, you know, tens of thousands of just really cool people, right? And you yourself, of course, I mean, you've traveled the world, you've been involved with tons of projects. And every time you do one of these, when you, when you have that expanded ability to really meet a lot of, and a wide variety of people, I mean, they've all got something to teach, right? And so that's what was fun about this project was not only to share some just really fun stories about what it's like to be a Top Gun instructor, what it's like to fly a high-performance aircraft. It's also really kind of a secret way to say, look, I mean, across all these thousands of men and women who are truly amazing at their job, I took the best traits that I learned along the way and I condensed it into something that, you know, your high school student, your college student, your you know, young career individual could could benefit from and could enjoy, right? And that's, I think, the best secret sauce is when you can take, you know, whether it's leadership lessons or any kind of lessons, but you can wrap them with something that's a lot of fun to be a part of. Um, people are going to be more compelled to want to pick it up and read it. And and I'll give all credit to the publishers. They did a phenomenal job with the cover. I love just when you pick it up, how it looks. So, but you're right. Um, this was a lot of fun to write. Um, I love the fact that there are we're fixated right now on uh, some pretty extreme neg negativity in the country. And I think rightfully so. We have to figure how we're going to chart a path forward. But at the same time, for, for most men and women in this country, they are concerned about their families. They're concerned about their livelihoods. Uh, and I think this is why this project was a lot of fun, because this is the style of book that I could either hand to my 13-year-old or a friend or a coworker and say, hey, you're going to get a lot out of this. Mm, I really love that. And it it does feel like the kind of inspiration that we all are looking for right now. And yeah, as, as I think many of us who just think of your former line of work as being so cool, it's exciting to think that we might be able to get in, you know, as you said, into the cockpit with you and, and learn a little bit about what being in that zone of rarefied air taught you? I think, again, that gets back to our overall theme about getting back, to, like you said, let's bring America back together again. Like, let's get to a point where there's the positivity, the can-do spirit, the, the excitement of what's in front of us instead of just more concern about what the next month might bring, especially as we contemplate coronavirus and other, you know, shocks to the system that we still think are maybe just right around the corner, especially with flu season. So when you think about, um, Again, just being able to get back to a place where we're we're absolutely having fun again. We're and, and one thing I cannot wait to do for all three of my children. I think they'll be old enough is to take them to go see you know Top Gun Maverick when it comes out next year. I mean, um, the first movie when it was released in 1986, absolutely I, no pride, right? I mean, it's it's kind of cool to say that hey, I never saw the movie or it didn't make a difference. It made a huge difference. I loved the movie. I wanted to be a fighter pilot because of Tom Cruise and the other actors in that first movie. And I really hope uh, in the best sense that the, there'll be millions of men and women who go to see the next movie and say that that's a cool line of work 
that it's something that, you know, you're serving your country, you're having a blast while you're doing it, and you're going to learn, right? I mean, if you had told me when I was a kid growing up in North Texas, um, you know, I kind of really did have two pathways in front of me. I had one pathway to go to University of Texas and, um, and go uh, study computer science, or I could go to the U.S. Naval Academy. And because I joined the Navy and went to the Naval Academy, I mean, that's what gave me a point of entry to MIT. That's what gave me a point of entry to live in Japan twice, to tour the world with Secretary Mattis. I mean, it's, it really is such a great adventure. And so whether men and women spend you know, five years of their lives or 20 years of their life uh, serving their country, I think it's, it's a very altruistic pursuit. In addition, obviously, to your book, which we all, I would imagine, are going to read, are there recommendations of other books or publications that you think or you know to be helpful in better understanding and sort of making sense of leadership, our political situation, our institution, or, or just to offer some hope? Yeah, man, what a great question. Um, yes is the short answer. Uh, I'd have to give a little bit more thought into which ones I would specifically recommend to your audience because, frankly, there are so many really good ones out there. I have found myself gravitating to kind of two variations of books like that. I've, I've found myself, um, regardless of who the author is, I like reading a lot of the contemporary history that is coming out of the Trump administration. I know that the president will say, oh, it's all fake news and it's it's made up. But, I mean, I've kn- I've known many of the people who've written these books, and when I read it, it accurately reflects the experience I had in this administration. So I suspect there's, there's quite a bit of elements of truth. So I think that that's important because it helps give you some facts-based elements that you can make decisions on. And if you get back just to a wider range of leadership, look, I mean, there's great stuff out there and it could be maybe a little bit more of the kind of nitty gritty, like Stephen Covey. Um, you know, there's just, um, yeah, across the board. I mean, there's just, basically, I would say that the the thing that would under underline everything that you just asked is, uh, the importance is, is that you are reading, right? I mean, even my old boss, Secretary Mattis, had a great saying that is if uh, you find yourself in a leadership role and you haven't read hundreds of books by that point, you're functionally illiterate, right? I mean, books open a window. They they provide a perspective and a knowledge base that normally would take a lot of years to gain on your own. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, go to your local bookstore, find something that interests you and uh, and and dig in. Being a thought leader and a person with great influence coming from the background that you do, if you could inspire one major change in the country right now, whether it's politically or health-wise, what would that change be? I mean, look, at the end of the day, um, the country will always be in a rough spot if we can't heal the divide that exists between both sides of the aisle. Um, and by that, I mean, we have to rediscover our nation's fundamental friendliness. We have to find a pathway where you take, you kind of take the, the, the gas stove, right? And, and you take it off of a 10 and you dial it back to a one where sure we have disagreements, but I really want to find a pathway where you can have wildly different views, right? As you could imagine a room full of members from Black Lives Matter movement, you know, quote unquote, Antifa, Proud Boys, whoever, but you can all come into that room and say, "Here, here's my organization. This is why I believe what I believe." But I'd still like to hear about you and your organization. You know, what what do you care about? Because as soon as you put those walls up, and as soon as you believe that that your beliefs are the only ones that matter, 
um, you create a situation within the country where we're now focused more inwardly and we're less concerned about running the country, making life better for millions of men and women around our own nation, let alone around the world, right? And, and we didn't really dive into it too much, but that is something that has caught my ear is whether it's talking to members of like the Israeli embassy, friends who I served with in Japan, you know, some of these different nations around the world unanimously. This isn't just, they don't care too much about American politics. What they do care about is whether or not America is seen as being there for them. Is America still in that leadership role? And, and to a person, they've all expressed concern that America is no longer the guiding light for the world, let alone the partner of choice, because they just start to, they're starting to see that they can't trust us. And I think that there's a lot of concern there. And I think to, you know, should Vice President Biden win this election, I think President Trump should at least feel uh, somewhat good knowing that you have a statesman coming back into office, someone who his first order of business won't be to sign executive orders, simply trying to undercut everything the previous president did. Um, you have to find consistency as a nation. You have to be able to be steadfast. And even if you have policy differences, still be a nation that others want to partner with. Yeah, it comes back to that idea of compromise for the good of the citizenry, really. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is an energy that I miss a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I it's so funny. It. And, and it's so funny that it's only been, you know, it hasn't been that long since we had it. Um, one of the programs I had competed for when I was in the military is called the White House Fellowship Program. And in fact, Michelle Kwan was one of the, I mean, it was, it was awesome. I met some great people. But you had uh, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle. You had some other, you know, on both sides of the aisle. Uh, both Republican and, and Democratic co- members of Congress who were in the room. And they and they were regaling us with these stories. This is back in, I guess, 2013, right? It's towards the tail end of Obama's administration. And they were regaling us with these stories about how um, they, you know, had fundamental divides in their beliefs, but they're still able to come together to compromise, like you just said, um, to do what was best for the nation. So I think, you know, that's that's kind of, if you had to put that bumper stick on it, I would absolutely say, you know, country before party. And I know that that's tough for some people to swallow, but at the end of the day, I mean, you could you could fixate on your parties and run this country into the ground pretty quick. Uh, you still have to be able to come together as a nation at the end of the day. We always wrap up the show with a final question that's my favorite thing to ask everyone. When you think about the idea of a work in progress, what comes to mind in your life right now, whether it's professional or personal, what, what are you... What are you tinkering on to, to push forward? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. When you asked me that last time, I remember sharing quite openly. I was like, look, I mean, as a father, I was a work in progress. Um, I was reintegrating with my family after years of separation, being physically absent at sea. And I think we've made some really tremendous strides now that we've had that stability over the last couple of years. I would say, I think I'm actually with, with the family in a great spot. I'm, I'm kind of turning back more to what do I want to be when I grow up? Right? I mean, <laughs> as, a, as a fighter pilot, you're kind of like a kid, you know, I mean, yeah. you're, you're living your dream, you're doing all these fun things and you're working with great people. And uh, so this is my first foray into kind of the greater world and, and just, you know, there are so many great jobs, so many great people you could potentially work with. So it's kind of tough to figure out like, what do I really want to make my next big second act to be? Um, and so do I continue to write books and, do stuff in the public sphere or do I 
uh, focus on you know business for a while. I think that's for me what's going to be the big work in progress for the next year or so. Very cool. Well, I hope that we at least have an excellent election outcome and we can all get back to figuring out how to move forward and not not just try to put fires out. <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, I think we're, uh, I can tell in you as well, uh, we're fundamental optimists, right? Uh, and I think that that's one beautiful thing about being a student of history is that you realize uh, our nation's been here before. Uh, this is a particularly rough spot in the road, but we have faced adversity before. We've overcome it. When you think about the divisions kind of in the late 60s and early 70s with Vietnam and the Cultural Revolution, um, that led to some great advances in the 80s, 90s, and even into the 2000s, right? So um, the trick really isn't that it's when you face adversity, how do you deal with it? How do you spring back? And so that's, you know, the, our nation will always face difficulties, but can we pull together like we've discussed? And so I'm really looking forward to seeing that happen. Me too. Me too. And I'm honored to know you. I'm I'm glad that we're on the same team and onward. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Sophie. It's always great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure, really. Whip Smarties, it's no secret to any of you that this is an election year. And as we've talked about on this podcast, elections are, first of all, incredibly important to participate in. Second of all, basically make you feel like an intellectual superhero. And third of all, can be kind of complicated. One of the things we've discussed on this podcast is what voter suppression looks like today. And that's why I want to talk to you guys about I Am a Voter. It is a civic engagement organization that I helped to co-found. It is nonpartisan. It is incredibly easy to access. And one of the things we're trying to do is make sure that first-time voters have all the information they need and that everyone who believes they're already registered isn't going to wind up finding out they've been purged from the voter rolls when they get to the voting booth. So whether you're a first-time voter or a long-time voter, let's make sure you're registered and have all the resources you need. To do that, we created the easiest ever text line for you. Text the word voter. V-O-T-E-R, voter, to 26797. We can get you registered to vote in under two minutes. Check your registration. Make sure you know where your polling place is because sometimes they change and give you any other information that you need. So again, that's I am a voter and just text the word voter to 26797. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. 